Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Benson, for the invitation to be part of your Bible conference this week. It is, it is great to be with you, and I'm sure that every guest who comes to this campus says the same things, but it is exhilarating and exciting to travel from our home and, and come here to see what God is doing among you students on the campus of, of BJU, and I'm so glad to be here uh, this afternoon. Please join me in your copy of the Holy Scriptures, Psalm 67 this afternoon, Psalm 67, from where I want to address the, the worship of God in missions. The worship of God in missions, that is, if we are to cultivate a heart for the harvest, our theme for the week, we must first cultivate a heart for worship, the worship of God. Now, as we come to the Psalms, there are numerous different types of Psalms in the Psalter. There are Psalms of thanksgiving and lament and wisdom and prayer and imprecation. There are prophetic psalms and there are messianic psalms and pilgrimage psalms and royal songs. Of course, most often we think of praise psalms or psalms of, of praise. There are more than 20 different psalms that could be classified as praise psalms, but when we look at the praise psalms, we, we could identify them in two different categories. Some of the praise psalms are declarative that is, in the praise psalms, an individual or a community is declaring their praise to the Lord and calls others to do the same. One example of a declarative praise psalm would be across the page in Psalm 66. Psalm 66, verse number one, make a joyful shout to God, all the earth. Sing out the honor of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your works. Through the greatness of your power, your enemies shall submit themselves to you. All the earth shall worship you and sing praises to you and shall sing praises to your name. A declarative praise psalm. But there are other praise psalms that are not declarative so much as they are descriptive. And that is describing why we are to praise the Lord. One example of a descriptive praise psalm would be Psalm 136 where it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Why? For he is good, for his mercy endures forever. In fact, over and over and over again, in, in each of those 26 verses in Psalm 136, the Bible says, for his mercy endures forever. So as we come to Psalm 67, one could describe or classify Psalm 67 as, as a praise psalm that both declares and describes praise to the Lord, and I think we'll come to understand that this afternoon. However, as we come to Psalm 67, I've discovered that there are, there are differences in the formatting of Psalm 67 in our English Bibles. In the New King James, there's a paragraph break between verses 2 and 3, and again between verses 4 and 5. Look at your copy of the scriptures there. In the ESV, the, the English Bible puts the spaces between verses 3 and 4, and again between verses 5 and 6. The NIV format is different from those, while the King James and the New American Standard don't provide any formatting. The bottom line is that there is a difference of opinion as to how this psalm should be read. You say, okay, but I, I, don't, I don't see it. Well, that's fine, but at least I made you look. At least I, I made you look at the text with me this afternoon and, and examine the text. We, we want to look for the punctuation. We want to look for the, the paragraph breaks or other literary devices for us to aid us in our reading and our understanding of this praise psalm. 
Regardless of the English formatting of Psalm 67, one thing is clear and consistent across all English Bibles, and that is at the end of verse number one, and at the end of verse number four, I hope you're looking again at the text, there is that mystery word, Selah. It's found nearly 75 times in the Old Testament. It appears to be a musical notation that indicates an intended pause perhaps a pause for some point of reflection, a moment of reflection. Furthermore, you'll notice the the repetition of the chorus or the refrain in verses 3 and 5. Look at verse 3, look at verse 5, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. In fact, Psalm 67 is a chiastic psalm which brings us to the fulcrum or the the center point of of verse number 4 there between verses 3 and 5. But this afternoon, I've prepared an outline and have prepared a message that doesn't follow some of these literary devices or some of the the structure of the text of the psalm, but rather I want to highlight for you a theme in Psalm 67 that is relevant to the missions conference, I'm sorry, the Bible conference this week, and that is the worship of God in missions the worship of God in missions, and I'll approach the psalm not in a literary way as I've just described, but thematically by asking two questions. What happens while we worship and what happens when we worship? In other terms, what do we experience during our worship? And then the second question, what is accomplished because of our worship? And I would ask that you consider these with me together. Number one, number one, what happens while we worship? What do we experience during our worship. And I would point you to verse number one, Psalm 67, verse one. God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us. Verse number one may sound familiar to you for it's an adaptation of Aaron's priestly blessing found in Numbers 6, verses 24 to 26, in which the high priest Aaron, the high priest of Israel, would pronounce a blessing upon the people. And that blessing became part of the religious liturgy of the people of Israel in in Bible times from the time of the Exodus through the period of the temple and even to New Testament synagogue worship. And for centuries, Jewish fathers blessed their children with these very words. And even today, you, you, you might hear Psalm 67, verse number one, recited as part of an invocation or part of a dedication service. But whereas Psalm 67 begins with these words, typically these words are used at the conclusion of an event. The language of Psalm 67 verse 1 is normally used as a benediction, something done at the end of a service. So here we are. Imagine with me that we are not uh, here at the beginning of the service. We're walking in at the end of the service, the end of a church service, a worship service, perhaps a, a college chapel. And we're walking in late to the proceedings of the tabernacle or the temple, and we're catching the end of the service, and it's a time for the people to be dismissed because the worship service is over. It's a time to leave for, for the, the meeting is, is concluding, and you're headed to your homes. And at the end of our services, we normally might make some announcements or give some instructions or pray before we're dismissed. But if you were to walk in at the end of the service and you were to hear Psalm 67, verse number 1, you would recognize that maybe you missed something. You missed the whole service. You missed the announcements, and you missed the the preaching or the teaching, and you missed the music. You missed the worship. And so as you come into the end of the service and you hear Psalm 67, verse number 1, you ask yourself, what happened here? Or what ought to have happened here? What happens while we worship? 
But I think there's three observations here. First, we encounter God's mercy while we worship. Verse number one again, God be merciful to us. All right, what is mercy? Mercy is compassion or forgiveness that's shown toward one when it's within one's power to punish or harm them. And mercy describes one who is stooping down or reaching out for help to one who is weaker or in need. Mercy is the antithesis then of one whose arm is raised in in judgment over another. And so as we meet for corporate worship, we learn of God's mercy and we experience God's mercy. And as we sing and we read the scriptures and we listen to the preaching of God's word, as we confess sin, we are experiencing, as it were, God stooping down to meet us in loving kindness and commune with us. And students, I would say to you pastorally, as a pastor, when you are hurting, when you are in need spiritually, you need to come and be part of the assembly, to be part of the congregation for corporate worship. Because it's in the context of worship that we know our need for mercy and we learn of God's mercy upon us. So often in pastoral ministry, people have said to me, I'm sorry I haven't been in church lately. I've been going through hard times. Going through hard times. Where would you otherwise want to be or need to be than in community with God's people in worship of God? Because we there encounter God's mercy upon us. Something else happens while we worship. While we worship, we encounter God's mercy. Look at verse number one again. God be merciful to us and bless us. Secondly, we encounter God's blessing. And where there is God's mercy, there is also God's blessing. Now, the Hebrew word translated bless here is, is derived from the, the, the meaning of, of to kneel. It, it, it suggests a gesture of the bent knee. Psalm 95 verse 6 says, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And, and beyond the, the giving of our worship is the receiving of blessing when we bow. And a blessing is extended to one who has bent the knee, who has bowed the knee in worship, kneeling. We bow our heads in, in prayer, and when we adopt a posture that is ready to, to worship, we're ready to receive a blessing. So what happens while we worship? We encounter God's mercy, verse 1. We encounter God's blessing, verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. God be merciful to us, bless us, and cause his face to shine upon us. Thirdly, we encounter God's face. We encounter God's face. Now, oriental monarchs would reveal their pleasure or their displeasure by their facial expressions. And if you sought an audience with an ancient king uh, and and he he scowled at you, or worse, he hid his face from you, refused to look upon you, you would know that that was bad, very, very bad. Either he's ignoring you or he's rejecting you. And so, in worship, we encounter God's face shining upon us. Listen to the plea of the psalmist, Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, how long will you hide your face from me? Psalm 27, 9. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. Do not leave nor forsake me, God of my salvation. Psalm 44, 24. Why do you hide your face and forget our affliction and our oppression? Psalm 67, 17, do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in trouble. Psalm 102, verse 2, do not hide your face from me in the day of trouble. And there is an understanding here among the psalmists that God's face is his favor. 
And when we go to the Lord in corporate worship and humbly experience His mercy and His blessing, we encounter also His, his face, face. And we encounter these things as we ascribe worth to God. And I would say this to us this afternoon, that so many times in the Psalms, the psalmists lament their absence from corporate worship. In fact, go with me to Psalm 42. Psalm 42, just briefly. Psalm 42, a familiar psalm, a psalm that I think speaks to this very same thing. Psalm 42, verse number one. You, you know this psalm, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they continually say to me, where is your God? In a mocking, derisive sense. When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me, for I used to go with the multitude. I went with them to the house of God. Why would you go with the multitude to the house of God? For corporate worship with the voice of joy and praise with a multitude that kept a pilgrim feast. And the pilgrim feasts refer to those festive processions of going up to Jerusalem for the high and the holy days for worship. Go back to Psalm 67. Psalm 67, at the end of verse number one, we find that musical notation, that word selah. And scholars aren't sure exactly of its meaning, but they agree that it, it somehow calls for a point of reflection. It calls for a break before the next line to allow the reader, or in this case, the worshiper, to, to consider what has been said. And so I want to pause just for this moment, and I want us to consider that here in Psalm 67, God's mercy and His blessing and His face has just been experienced by God's people in worship. Those that weren't late for the worship service. Those who had been part of the, the proceedings. But now the service is over. The proverbial organ is playing the benediction. The people are dispersing. And so now what? In verse 2, answers the question for us, the query for us this afternoon, for what purpose or to what end? You see, the service is over. The meeting is over. We've checked the box of church attendance. We, we're, we're going to our homes. We're going about our business. And if indeed Israel experienced God's blessing and, and the light of God's face upon them while worshiping, verse number 1, then what happens because of it. And that's my second question. Number two, what happens when we worship? What is accomplished because of worship? Every single week we attend a worship service. We call it a church service. Every single day on this campus you have a chapel service where there's music and there's worship and there's corporate singing and the reading of God's Word, and then we dismiss and we go about our business. What happens when we worship? What's accomplished? It might be better phrased as the why question rather than the what question. Why do we worship? What's the point of it all? Just think, young person, just think about how many worship services you've been to. It's exhausting. Every single week, maybe multiple times a week for your entire life, if you grew up in a Christian home, so many services on campus. Why 
Why do we do these things? What's the point or the purpose? And, and the, the happening is explained in verse number two. The purpose statement is found in verse number two, that your way may be known on the earth, your salvation among all nations. You see, as we conclude our worship service, verse 1, having experienced then the, the, the mercy and the blessing in the face of God, because of that, the rest of the world cannot possibly remain in darkness for the effects of worship don't only impact the worshiper, but the world to all those around us. First, subpoint letter A, God will be made known. What happens when we worship? God will be made known. And the purpose of God's blessing is not for the selfish enjoyment of his people, but so that the nations might know his way. And from observing God's blessing on his people, the nations should be able to deduce that God is the true God. And that was the point of God's working in and through Israel. That was the point of God ordering Israel's worship so that the nations might know that God of Israel is the true and living God. You all remember the the Bible story, of course, of David and Goliath. David's declared purpose in fighting the giant was not to demonstrate that little people can beat up big people, but rather so that all the world may know that there is a God in Israel. And that's the reason why the author of Psalm 42, we read it a moment ago, had such misgivings in his distress. The nations around him were asking him, where is your God? And the author of Psalm 42 was hard-pressed to make God known to them when God appeared to be absent and the psalmist was removed from the place of worship. He was separated or segregated from worship. And could not answer, where is your God? Perhaps you've never thought of the fact that each of us came to know the Lord as a result of someone else's witness or testimony. In fact, perhaps you've never thought that your home church is a product of someone else's missionary activity. The reason that we have the gospel is because God's salvation was made known among the nations at some point before us. And the reason that there has been such a strong gospel witness in our own country coming to us over the last number, a few hundred years is because of a group of people that were compelled to sail to a place where they could worship freely. You see, driven by worship as a consequence, salvation is made known among the nations. Look at verse number three. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse three is duplicated then in verse number five. I would offer you letter B, God will be praised. God will be praised. John Piper has written a book titled Let the Nations Be Glad, The Supremacy of God in Missions, and it is a critically important book for worldwide global evangelism and the advance of the gospel. And at the beginning of his book, he he says this, and I've copied the text for you there on the screen. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides 
forever. Worship, therefore, he says, is the fuel and the goal of missions. He continues. He says, it is the goal of missions because in missions, we simply aim to bring the nations into the white-hot enjoyment of God's glory. The goal of missions is the gladness of the people and the greatness of God. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Let the peoples praise thee, O God. Let all the peoples praise thee. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. He says, but worship is also the fuel of missions. Passion for God and worship precedes the offer of God in preaching. You can't command what you don't cherish. Missions will never call out, let the nations be glad, who cannot say from the heart. Here is the heart for the harvest. The theme of, of the Bible conference this week. The heart for the harvest is this. I rejoice in the Lord. I will be glad and exalt in thee. I will sing praise to thy name almost high. Missions begins and ends in worship. And so I would say to us this afternoon as we seek to cultivate a heart for the harvest, local evangelism and, and worldwide global missions, the advance of the gospel, it's got to begin with a heart of worship. God will be made known. God will be praised. Look at verse number four. Oh, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you shall judge the people righteously and govern the nations on earth. I would say to you, letter C, God will be enjoyed. God will be enjoyed in verse number four. And, and nothing creates gladness so completely as knowing the salvation of the Lord. Now, nations may experience political peace or social prosperity, but the gladness and joy can only come when the Lord is their leader. Of course, we look forward to that in the millennial kingdom, when Jesus rules and reigns on the throne of David for, for a thousand years. But now we don't live under a theocracy, but someday we will. And as the Lord governs the nations on the earth at that time, there will be great joy. Selah. Think about that for a moment. Think about that in light of all of the current political circumstances in our own country. Think about that in light of the current geopolitical circumstances around the world. Dr. Benson mentioned I just returned from Myanmar this last weekend. Uh, my luggage did come with me, Dr. Tillotson. Um, but uh, traveling to Myanmar, the U.S. State Department had issued a level four travel advisory, a do not travel to the country of Myanmar. Um, but we went nonetheless. We were compelled to stay in a government-approved hotel where they could watch us. And there was, had the privilege of, of ministering for a week, teaching in a Bible college there, preaching in a church encouraging the, the missionaries and the, the believers there. Their country is ripped apart by a milita militarized government that is being opposed by a coup from, from the people rising up and warring against their own government. We might call it civil war. Yet they are taking the gospel to a war-torn country so that God can be known praised and enjoyed there in that place when there's perhaps little else to celebrate at the time. Verse number five, let the peoples praise you, O God, let all the peoples praise you. Then the earth shall yield her increase, God our own God shall bless us, God shall bless us, and all the ends of the earth shall fear him. Letter D, God will be feared. 
God will be feared. I think we understand that in the Old Testament, the fear of God didn't always describe the terror, the terror of, of punishment, but the reverence and the awe that is due God. The fear of God here is synonymous with the worship of God. And the fear of God or the worship of God compelled people to respond in some way. And I think historically, worship is what motivated the hands of God's people to give, to serve, and to go. Let me illustrate this with a bit of history for you. The first missionary endeavor of the Protestants in England burst forth from the soil of Puritan worship. Now, the Puritans, you remember, were those pastors, were those people, teachers in England and New England between the years of 1560 and 1660 who wanted to purify the Church of England, the Puritans, for a, for a century there, wanting to purify the corruption of the Church of England and bring it into theological and practical alignment with the teachings of the Reformation. And to describe it mildly, they were consumed with the pure worship of God. Puritans, the pure worship of God. It was between 1627 and 1640 that 15,000 of them immigrated from England to America, most of the Puritans carrying the worship and mission of God with them. In, in fact, that was the seal of the colonists of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that they had on it in North America as they arrived here. And uh, it, it had these words of, a, of an Indian, an American, Native American Indian, um, with these words coming out of his mouth on the seal. It said, come over into Macedonia and help us. Taken from Acts 16, verse number 9, you recall the occasion when Paul received that Macedonian call. For the Puritans, they saw their immigration to this country as a twofold opportunity. Freedom to worship God as they were convinced in their conscience from the scriptures. And secondly, to reach the nations. They were compelled by worship to go to the nations. One of those Puritans who crossed the Atlantic in 1631 was John Eliot. He was 27 years old and a year later became the pastor of a new church in Roxbury, Massachusetts, about a mile from Boston. According to Cotton Mather, there were 20 Indian tribes in that vicinity. John Eliot could not avoid the practical implications of his worship and his high view of God, so John Eliot set out to study Algonquin. He deciphered the vocabulary and grammar and syntax and eventually translated the entire Bible and other books he valued. By the time Eliot was 84 years old, there were numerous Indian churches, some with their own Indian pastors, all because the worship of God drove him to make known the salvation of the Lord among the nations. You wouldn't know it, but Psalm 67 is not just a praise psalm, but it has become known as the missionary psalm. And you may not have thought about it before, but students, the worship of God is how you cultivate a heart for the harvest. If you are driven out of pity for poverty around the world, if you are motivated by pity 
for the lost. If you are compelled to reach your neighbor out of guilt for obeying the Great Commission, all the aforementioned may be real and good, but at the end of the day, it is only when our hearts are enlarged with praise and worship of God will we find ourselves driven to make Him known to the nations. So students, I would say this to you. You attend a lot of worship services. Sometimes you come in late and you miss the good stuff. Other times you endure through the entire hour. But know that when you gather for corporate worship, and the Spirit of God and the Word of God is stirring your heart in fear of God, in awe of God, in worship of God. Those are the seeds that are being planted in your heart for the harvest so that we can take the gospel to the nations. What happens while we worship? We encounter God's mercy and His blessing and His faith. What happens when we worship is a consequence of our worship, because of our worship. When worship is over, the benediction is pronounced. We go from our place in evangelism, in compassion for the nations so that they too might worship the great God whom we call our Father. Let's pray. God in heaven, we know that you have created us for your glory. You have created us for worship. Lord, of course, because of the fall, the sin of man that has been damaged and destroyed, but yet we know that as you in your redemptive purposes have, have rescued us from our sin and recreated us after your likeness, that you intend for us to spend eternity in worship with every tribe and tongue and nation and people. Lord, we're thankful for those who brought the gospel to our shores. Lord, for those that were compelled by worship to make the gospel known, salvation known to the, to the nations. I pray, Lord, that you would find us to do the same, each of us individually and collectively. May the students of Bob Jones University go to the harvest and take with them the worship of the true and living God. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.